Should I let the dog stop barking? He's been barking for a little while. <laughs> Where is he? <laughs> He's right behind me. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is February 23rd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Welcome back. Thanks. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back from vacation. Thank. Great job last week. Uh, oh, you rattled you. off the top of the the show with a plum. Oh, thank you. Yes, I always <laughs> try to do everything with a plum. With a plum. Yeah, yeah. And from what Los are, Angeles. What does that word mean? I don't know what that word means. <laughs> Pizzazz. Uh, effectiveness. Okay. Good. Good. You can go back to my introduction. I, that's, I just, uh, I, I, that's former editor Jeff Foster. <laughs> yeah, former editor now with a limited vocabulary. Yeah, you Jeff could tell Foster. Jeff's favorite website as editor was thestarist.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually when I need a, a new word, I just I open that up, and then I just find the longest and most complicated sounding one and plug that in. That's how I write. That. That's really, yeah, that's really smart. I like that's, that. You... So that's why anti-disestablishmentarianism showed oh, yeah. up so much in my stories. Oh, that's yeah. Great word. <laughs> Lake Tahoe, um, the, the NHL discovered that the sun shines and um, sometimes melts ice over the weekend. That was that was pretty fun. What did you guys it think happens. about that one? It happens. I thought it looked amazing. Oh, I mean, it was, it was like gorgeous. Yeah, they. I, but you could tell they sort of like sold out everything for that. Those shots of the mountains and the lake and everything, and it was and it looked it looked better during the day than at night. It just was so spectacular, and it, they they were blinded by that, and they didn't see anything else, including the quality of the ice surface, the effect <laughs> of the sun directly overhead uh, on the ice surface, and uh, it became a disaster. Yeah, but they they've had they, this is this is par for the course with outdoor hockey. Like, there's always weather issues. It's just yeah. hard to pull off. It's just inevitable. No, I think it is worth it for the, the spectacle alone. And honestly, I mean, even though it, like, felt like kind of a nightmare for, for them, it wasn't. I mean, it was a, it, it probably turned out fine PR-wise. I mean, more people were paying attention to it than maybe would have been because there were sun jokes to make on Twitter. Yeah. Although, I guess, I mean, even I, being like a quite a diehard hockey fan did not stay up to the midnight start of the second period of that <laughs> avalanche golden knights game i feel like someone in the nhl office has been like screwing around with photoshop like putting photoshopping um hockey games into like scenes from the country and then someone got a hold of that was like oh yeah that's actually a good idea let's do that let's make that real real put it next to everything put it next to the white house put it next to mount rushmore why not do it. Do it all. I think they should build a hockey version of Mount Rushmore with like Gretzky, Lemieux, Willie O'Ree, uh, and and then play the hockey game in the shadow of that Mount Rushmore. That would be uh, the most meta possible setting they could have for it. It's not like and put it in like, I don't know, Quebec City or something like some place where <laughs> maybe they don't have a team, but it's in Canada. We can get like some broad support for it. Um, I You know, if if the NHL is listening, that's my uh, my plan. On today's show, we'll talk about the results of the Australian Open, what Serena Williams has left, and why the reign of the top three on the men's side definitely isn't done. Then we'll check in on college basketball. March is almost upon us, but before the madness descends, we'll look at how the regular season has gone and which teams seem interesting coming into the tournament. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
The Australian Open wrapped up over the weekend. On the men's side, Novak Djokovic won his ninth Australian Open and 18th Grand Slam by beating Daniel Medvedev. On the women's side, Naomi Osaka beat Jen Brady to claim her fourth Grand Slam win after taking out Serena Williams along the way. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith talked about why the semifinal loss to Osaka may have been particularly tough for Serena. It's one thing to lose and to feel like mortality has kicked in and it's really shining brightly in your face because of age, attrition, etc., etc. But you can still hold on for one more, which I'm hoping Serena Williams will do because I want I really wanted to catch Margaret Court, at least catch her and win one more Grand Slam title. Like similar to the sport of golf, you can fall short for many years and then have one good tournament like Tiger Woods did with the Masters. okay, and pull it off. And she's just one shy of this, not four or five, just one. So I would if I was her, I would continue to go for it and I wouldn't retire yet. But I think that she's contemplating it strongly, in my opinion. And I think the where you saw the tears coming from is the fact that there is one conspicuous wall standing in her way. And that's Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka is on a roll right now. She dropped only one set in Melbourne, and this is after winning the U.S. Open in September. There, there's no question that she's playing excellent tennis. But, Neil, is she really the wall between Serena and that elusive 24th Grand Slam? I mean, it, it's tough to say because obviously it's, uh, there's so much recency bias right now kind of coming out of uh, the this tournament. And so I feel like we've fallen prey to that before with uh, players that we felt like could stand between Serena and winning again. Uh, and especially in the women's side because there are – such a just variety of different champions that it's it's always tough to make a bet against one person being sort of the the person standing in someone's way unless it's actually Serena herself <laughs> against like her sister or Maria Sharapova or like there was a long list of of uh people that she served as a wall in front of and I think we've been trying to find like who will be the next uh person to take that mantle and Osaka looks like the closest to that that we've had in, in a long time. Uh, but, you know, head to head, even after uh, this weekend, Osaka only has a three and two record against Serena in their careers. Uh, Williams had won the previous two matches. Uh, and Osaka also, she's not unbeatable. I know it feels that way right now because of the tournament that she had, but she's had her ups and downs ever since kind of making her initial splash on the Grand Slam scene uh with that u.s open a couple years ago uh she didn't even make it past the round of 16 in the next four grand slams after she won the 2019 aussie open so i I think there is always a tendency to kind of overstate how uh, you know the person that's playing really hot right now is so unbeatable on the women's side that hasn't always been the case. Now, on the men's side, we'll talk about that in a little bit. It does seem a lot more predictable yeah. in terms of picking someone that uh, is is a wall. Literally, there are three people who are walls in front of everyone else, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the Osaka winning the – looking so good in the U.S. Open and then winning the Australian – seems a lot like what happened in 2018 2019 when she won the u.s open and then won the australian open and then like you said neil just didn't didn't do much over the next year tennis is a really up and down sport and it it's not like i feel like people want to say all right osaka's gonna win it all every time now from now on 
And that's just not how it how it works ever in women's tennis. It's not how it works in men's t- tennis either. I mean, yes, there are three players who win it all, but they switch yeah, it off. You right, know. They trade it back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> but they trade off among the three of them. I also really feel like Serena did not play her best match against Osaka. Now, some of that was Osaka making life very hard on her. But when I look at how she played against both Arena Sabalenka and Simona Halep, and those are the those were the seventh seeded and second seeded players in the tournament, she played. I mean, against Halep, she played such a complete game. Her probably her best match since she came back from from giving birth. I mean, she really it seemed like she had everything together. And then she did not play as well against Naomi. She had um, she really struggled with her forehand. She had only three winners and 13 unforced errors from that side. The three winners is way below what she normally would have with her forehand. Again, some of that is how well Naomi was playing and how well she was getting to the ball. But some of it was I mean, Serena was hitting the ball into the net, and she made those errors. She was also serving at a much lower percentage than she had in her previous two matches, which tells me that there was, you know, that it was a little bit on her as well, and not just how great Osaka was playing. There was some discussion as Serena was leaving the court after her loss that her farewell to the crowd seemed kind of final. (laughs) Jeff, could that have been her last Australian Open? Is Is that possible right now? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, I, I sort of feel like, you know, we talk about, you know, obviously I'm outspoken about how silly this record is that she's going for. Um, but it does feel like she wants to win one more slam. And then I think that'll be it. That's just what my gut is saying. It is unusual to see her re- leave a court like that, because usually, as we know, when she loses, she just bolts. She's out of there and um, is in the locker room very quickly. Um which is understandable. I would be the same way, probably. <laughs> but um, it did feel like something was different. And then you look at the press conference. She was kind of asked about it and she got a little, um, you know, she cut it off early after that question. So uh, she also said she's not going to tell anyone when it does happen. So, you know, I, I take her word for that. But I sort of feel like it could be. I mean, I, I think like I, this Wimbledon will be the one that's really interesting to me. I think if she Wimbledon, obviously this and Australian over her two, probably two best majors. And if she wins this Wimbledon, I could see that being the way she goes out. I think she wants to go out with a win. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was her last Australian open. Um, it also could be that, you know, there were fans there and that's a little unusual. It's a weird thing to say, but it is just the truth. So, you know, maybe it's just recognizing those fans, which are, I think all the players appreciate how good those fans are in Melbourne. Well, and, and they had just gone five days without fans. So fans had just come back, you know, after having been kept away because of the, the virus in the middle of the tournament. So I do think there, there were, yeah, I think you're right. I I felt like it was more about the fans at, at least that's what I was yelling at my TV when they were talking about it. You know, lost in the semis, lost in the semis of the U.S. Open last year, lost two finals in 2019, two finals in 2018. She's getting really close, and it's not like she's running into some opponent every time. You know, this isn't like a Stan Wawrinka situation where, you know, you do really well and then you run into one of the top guys. Although he's actually has a couple wins. Might not have been the best example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> The Stan Wawrinka situation. That would be a good band name, too. <laughs> but, um, 
I don't think it's I, I do wonder if it is the the fact that that is, you know, her sixth or seventh match in a short period of time. And like what maybe that is what the factor is, you know, just kind of running out of gas at the end of these tournaments. I don't think it's necessarily who she's playing. We've seen like other tournaments where she's beaten top seeded players and then kind of lost to someone unseated in the in the finals or semifinals. So it it seems to be more about her than, you know, what she's running up against. And that probably explains a lot of her reaction also is just the disappointment and sort of what this tournament was kind of shaping up to be and how she's had tournaments that also felt the same way that it has to sort of weigh on you emotionally, not meaning that you like want to retire as a result of it. But I mean, it's hard to come this close so many times in a row, especially for one that means as much, you know, this particular uh number grand slam would would mean uh and and just you know kind of fall short so she probably had you know she expected to win and um i think if you're playing naomi osaka and still in your heart of hearts expect to win and are disappointed when you don't win that actually says a lot about like the (laughs) level of tennis that you're playing yeah i would not go into that match expecting to win i would be expecting to sit down on the court and cry also the the draw in this women's in this Australian Open was so much harder on Serena's half. I mean, the fact that she had to play Holop, Sabalenka, Osaka, like those are all <laughs> extremely good players. The top half of the draw was just way easier. So you have to get a little lucky, right? Like you have to have a, a good draw, maybe have a top player, um, you know, get upset earlier on. That kind of thing happens all the time. I really, I really think she, I think she has, you know, an even shot of getting that. I really think she does. Um, okay, well, over on the men's side, Djokovic ended Medvedev's 20-game win streak to win his 18th Grand Slam, and he, he made it look kind of easy. Jeff, how big of a deal was this win for Djokovic? I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's it, it, his record in Melbourne, you know, in the final is, is just remarkable, and it just showed that form where he seems unstoppable in this tournament that we've seen so many times. And... You know, we you talk about the slam totals. It's it, it's amazing how he's just kind of narrowed the gap so gradually, and now it seems pretty inevitable that he will, you know, surpass Federer. I don't know how that, I mean, barring an injury or another, you know, mix up, you know, with the health or something like that. Like it seems like he's in the best shape of that top three and and the most ready to win these tournaments against tough fields. So it's pretty outstanding. Uh, yeah, uh, it's funny. Like, I, I feel like Nadal gets sort of lost in this conversation a little bit because he had been injured. But he's actually, like, closer to Djokovic's age than he is to Federer's, which is also sort of surprising. Um, and also, I can't imagine him ever losing a French Open, right? So if he just, like, automatically gets a gets a slam every year, can Djokovic keep pace with that? And at the moment, if Djokovic just keeps winning the Australian Open, then... then Yes, maybe he maybe he can. Yeah, is it weird that it's sort of like um, t- one tournament versus one tournament? And yes, they do win the others sometimes, but it's really sort of like the bulk of the wins have come in in one tournament for each of them. Uh, and uh, the surface again, it really does come down to that. I mean, maybe a little less so for Djokovic because there are other hardcore slams. But uh, I don't know. It's it's just interesting to think about, and it's interesting to think about like. You're right that Federer, you know, being tied with Nadal, 
it it seems like Federer could be in third place. He could have gone from first place to third place in uh, a matter of just like a, a year or so. You know, um, I also thought for Djokovic that uh, this was like such a such a. I think what made it huge was it was such a difference from like the narrative around him for like the last year and all of the stuff that's happened in the last year in his life, both like on the court, kind of on and off the court, like the disqualification uh, and then also off the court. So it's just like all of the above and and this sort of, uh, you know, I know we kind of tear down narratives, uh, but this was like him tearing it down himself. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it was really hard on him falling in my estimation so much over the past year. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, he powered through that. So that was that was good for is him. He, is he back to number one in your personal ELO ratings? I don't. I don't think I don't think so. Uh. I don't I yeah, I don't I don't think so. Not after um, not after the stuff that happened last year. Uh, But this this idea of this this big three, this the big three is like pretty, pretty ridiculous. How how can we understand the continued dominance of those three men Especially compared with the parity over the past few years on the women's side, Neil is the is the women's talent pool deeper, or or are Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer just just such transcendent players that they've they've walled off tennis for every other man? Well, no, I, I don't think. I mean, I think the difference on the men's and women's is uh, in large part a factor of the shorter matches. You know, like mm-hmm. it's easier to pull off upsets when you only have to win two versus three, um, uh, and, and that plays a role. I I think also like Serena's injuries uh you know when when she stepped like she stepped away from the game on a few occasions at the moments where you have to think that she would have kind of continued winning if she had been able to um you know keep playing through that that is is a factor I I don't know how to necessarily explain though the fact that Djokovic Nadal and Federer have won 58 of the last 68 Grand Slams and I think the last time anyone other than Andy Murray was second in the world was 2005. Uh, like it, that does sort of defy belief or explanation because uh, we know that from uh, all of sports that that you know the younger generation keeps getting better. There's this evolutionary effect where you know players are sort of turning uh, to their preferred sport earlier in life and they're sort of getting high level training from a young age and and sort of being groomed to be great earlier at at each given sport and so you would expect there to be challengers that emerge and kind of break through against these guys who are winning at ages that we had not seen uh, Grand Slam winners, especially like multiple Grand Slam winners, win at uh, in previous generations. And yes, some of that's probably equipment, better conditioning, you know, all the things that go into like, why is Tom Brady still winning Super Bowls? That's right. a great question too. And and that's a parallel for this also. Um, but it does just seem so strange that like, given the fact that uh, talent seems to like we have this inherent belief that uh with each successive generation players get better uh that uh the the same guys from this one generation kind of are resistant to that i don't know what explains that you know we've seen this on the women's side this level of dominance of, among a certain group of players whether it was like graf or navratilova i mean graf won you know seven of eight 
majors across two year spans like twice in her career like that that's, that's a lot of winning yeah <laughs> um but what's interesting about this is just how long it's been going on it's just been going on for years like this is just not you like it's it's almost comical i just like I keep expecting like someone else to emerge and it just doesn't happen so you know i, I don't can't speak to whether that's because these guys are so good or no one else has really stepped up um, and it will happen eventually, I think. Maybe not, though. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> this just, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Tom Brady will someday retire. Maybe. The th- we're someone pretty else, sure. Someone Maybe. else will win a tennis grand slam. Maybe. Like, we're just really not sure. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, it, it'll be very interesting to happen with the to see what happens with the rest of the year, how Federer comes back, whether anyone can challenge Nadal at, at Roland Garros, which seems like... I mean, again, there is some time, too. I shouldn't just say, yes, obviously he's going to win, but it has seemed like a foregone conclusion. Um, Maybe this is the year. This is the year. Team breaks through in a major that Djokovic has not gotten himself disqualified from. We'll see. (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) All right. We can leave that there for a moment. Um, Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back to talk about college basketball. Since we are about three weeks or so away from the start of March Madness, we thought it would be a good time to check up on college basketball. This has been an unusual season because of the pandemic, of course, but also for other reasons. On the men's side, perennial contenders like Duke and Kentucky look not great this year. (laughs) Meanwhile, on the women's side, things look slightly joggier despite big turnovers in personnel, with UConn back to its usual spot at number one and Oregon boasting a cadre of young stars again. On ESPN's College Game Day, Monica McNutt suggested that among the slightly more unusual field in men's college basketball, one team's coach might provide an edge. I think there's like a dozen contenders in my mind on the men's side, legitimately, and Michigan would be one of them. But we also know how odd this year is. So what coaches think they know about their teams by the time we get to the tournament? Nothing is as certain as it would be in a traditional year. But I think Jawan Howard as a coach is uniquely positioned to relate to his players Because how many Fab Fives are there? Last time I checked, it's just the one that he was a part of. So, Jeff, I will put this to you as a Michigan fan. Do you agree that there are about a dozen contenders on the men's side with Michigan being one of them? Yeah, no, for sure. I I think it's a weird year. I mean, for two reasons. One, um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of the we don't really know anything about the smaller conference teams. I mean, I guess you could say Gonzaga is the it's exception. I mean, they, they did have a, you know, a game against Virginia and they've just dispatched everyone since. But the, part of that's not surprising when they're playing, you know, Santa Clara. They played and, Iowa. They played. They, yeah, they yeah, had a they, pretty they, tough they, non-conference schedule. Yeah, they did. Um, but uh, but a lot of these other schools that are sort of, um, you know, we'll see in the sort of 12 slots, the 11 slots, maybe, you know, up to eight and nine, even possible that we really don't know anything about. So I do think there is a potential for a, a tournament that is like perhaps seated even more incorrectly than than previous tournaments, which could lead to a particularly interesting tournament and, and shake things up. It does feel like there is a good balance of teams that are legitimate contenders, you know, beyond the big two of, of Gonzaga and Baylor. But, you know, the the teams from the Big Ten, Michigan, Illinois, um, Ohio State, for sure. And then, you know, the sort of lesser Big Ten teams, you know, whether that's Iowa um, or team Wisconsin, you know, obviously a potential. And then you got teams like Villanova, 
And and look, I I do I'll, as a Michigan fan, I'll, I I am partially concerned that this team could be peaking a little early, which is a little strange to say considering they took three weeks off. <laughs> I was sort of expecting them to come back with a little rust, but instead they come out with two wins um, on the road, which is impressive. But you know, I think they're probably due. I've watched them a lot. They're a good team. They're very well coached. Juwan Howard's great, but they're, they're probably due for a little re- regression. You've got to be happy with you got to be happy with the job Howard's done. Yeah, he's doing great, and then, and then they have the best recruiting class in the country coming in. So, yeah, for sure, 100%. The other thing that's really interesting, and this is particularly true in the Big Ten, is just how the home court advantage has, for obvious reasons, gone away. Um, and we're seeing a lot of, like, crazy upsets at home that we normally don't see. You know, Ohio State lost to Purdue and Michigan at home. Illinois lost to Maryland and Ohio State at home. So what we're seeing is that, I think a lot of these games are being played the way the tournament itself is normally played, which is interesting because, you know, remember in previous years, we'll see these teams come in with these great records, but a lot of it was done at home. And then they go and they have to, you know, play all these games in a neutral site and they might not be the same team. Ironically, it, we might be seeing a truer test of how these teams match up if you're considering a lot of these home courts closer to a neutral court. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way, that it that this actually could be preparing teams better for the tournament. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting idea. And maybe means that the Big Ten could could do better in the tournament than sometimes they do. I mean, you know, they, they're in line for like nine or ten spots in the field. Um, it seems like this could be the year we get a Big Ten champ. I mean, not to discount Gonzaga and Baylor, um, which I feel like we just are discounting Gonzaga and yeah, Baylor. No, undefeated. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, just watching the Michigan team as an example, because that's the team I obviously watch the most, like going into Ohio State and going into Wisconsin, the two recent wins they had, um, th- those places are normally impossible. Like when you get down to, you know, the last couple minutes and they were they were close games. It's just a different it's just a different game than what they were doing, you know, in the last week or so when they're the winning on the road, you know, without that effect. It's just amazing how important the crowd is actually in college basketball. And, and we've looked at this in the past that it is the one where home court or home field has the biggest impact. And that's interesting that there's all of these different factors that could kind of cut in many different directions. Like uh, you guys mentioned you know, there is the 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 home court versus the neutrality feeling of it. So it's like, oh, well, maybe what we've seen is representative. Then there there's the non-conference scheduling where it's like, oh, maybe what we've seen isn't representative. <laughs> then there's like the top two teams are way out ahead of everyone else. Let's not overthink this. Maybe it is like there's more certainty than usual because these two teams are dominant. But then maybe not. You know, so there's like so many different ways to spin it, I think, that I th- uh, will make this a really particularly fascinating tournament we were in store for a fascinating one last year before things got um upended uh for many of the same reasons of like well it's weird to see some of these teams at the top you don't see some of other teams i mean kansas obviously is a was a blue blood that was at the top last year um and not so much this year uh and we're seeing that happen even more uh this year than last year but like there's a fair number of weird teams at the top last year and i think we're just seeing that maybe that's the new normal for college basketball now yeah, I think because there wasn't a tournament last year, we've sort of forgotten. But like Carolina had a terrible year last year. I mean, they're, the the blue bloods, the traditional blue bloods are do seem to be uh, well. They're definitely struggling this year. I'm curious if this is like a, a COVID thing or if like taken with what happened last year too. 
are are those teams, Neil, you know, actually falling behind in in the college basketball arms race? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great question as to what it means going forward, because, uh, yeah, this was kind of a trend that was a little bit put in place even before COVID. So I don't know that we can blame COVID uh, for you know, the, we just the blame woes. it for everything. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I mean, you know, to be honest, that's going to be one of the big themes as we kind of come out of this this last you know nightmare of a of a year. Uh, looking forward in sports is how much of what we saw do we throw out and just chalk up to COVID and it won't happen again versus how much is kind of forever changed or, you know, was already kind of in the works, but maybe got um, accelerated by, by the conditions of, of the pandemic. And so there's a lot of things that fall under that category that I think we could, you know, spend multiple episodes and will spend multiple episodes <laughs> unpacking. Um, but, you know, I, I think the college basketball uh, big picture questions are certainly you know, very germane to us as people that are trying to kind of make predictions about this uh, going into the tournament is like, how normal will March Madness be or feel? By the way, I do think Duke is going to make the tournament. I'm just going to say that right now. And in fact, close. Yeah, they're playing better four games in a row. Yeah, they're playing better recently. Um, You can say, unfortunately, if you want. uh, (laughs) I will remain neutral. Sure. (laughs) It is possible they also get one of the one of the first four games the too. Bogus playing games. That would be so. That, that would, would be, really be great. Though. Yeah. I, think we, I think Duke should have to play one of those. <laughs> we just should, on principle, we yeah. should live. We should live blog that if it happens. Just a random <laughs> Wednesday night game. We should live blog that. Um, okay. Well, so on on the women's side, the contenders are what you might call familiar. <laughs> Only two of the teams currently in the top 10 were not in the preseason top 10. Those teams are number eight, Maryland, which was ranked 12th, and number three, Texas A&M, which was ranked 13th. The Aggies are a fun story. They're leading a stacked SEC at 20 and one, and they got a vote for, for the top ranking this week in the AP poll. Though, of course, it's hard to argue with the actual number one, Connecticut, whose only loss this year was to a very good Arkansas team. Fab freshman Paige Beckers is, unsurprisingly, killing it, averaging just under 21 points and six assists per game. Juniors Kristen Williams and Olivia Nelson Adoto are also averaging double figures for the Huskies. Neil, is UConn women's basketball just inevitable? Other teams will rise and fall, but UConn will still be in the top three. Well, yeah, if if we're talking in like a historical, you know, standpoint, zooming out across multiple years, but if we're talking about inevitability this year, you know, they may be the number one ranked team, but if you look at some of the power ratings, like the Massey ratings we like to look at, uh, Stanford is number one there. And, and there's actually like a pretty nice mix of different teams that uh, I think it's a lot more wide open on the women's side than it is with those like monolithic top two on the men's side, which is very different because we went through such a long period of time where UConn or maybe UConn and Notre Dame or maybe UConn and South Carolina, but it was always like the big ones slash 1.5 or 2 was always on the women's side and the men's side was maybe a little bit more wide open. Now it's kind of flipped where um, the women's tournament, I think, should be just as uh, just as interesting and just as tough to, to kind of pick uh, just who even the favorite is. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, South Carolina, you know, a bunch of teams have have kind of slotted in and out of the top the top spot in the rankings yeah. this year, which is unusual. 
Which is why when thanks you, UConn, yeah, well, and that's why when UConn grabbed it again, I was like, ugh, of course, naturally. And I mean, this UConn team is very fun, but it was just like, oh, but NC State, Louisville, like all these other Stanford, South Carolina, Baylor, you know, this these teams that have kind of been in and out this year, but have also been good over a couple of years. So there does seem like at the top, it's not quite as much of a foregone conclusion. Like until it is right. <laughs> I can tell. Then when they do get, when UConn does get the top spot, then you're like, oh yeah, that was always going to happen. When maybe that isn't actually, isn't actually the case. Sarah, do you root against UConn in the tournament? Um, it yes, I do. I mean, but it's I, not I, like I root- a Duke situation for you. No, like I'm. I mean, I root. You know, it's funny. I root. I typically root for for UConn players. There's been some really like fun and you know brilliant UConn players and I root against Gino Ariyama. <laughs> like he's more of the villain for me which I guess is sort of the same as Shashevsky. um but yeah I root I do root against UConn mostly because I want new stories and and other um you know the other the other stories in women's basketball to be told when sometimes UConn just dominates the narrative but I think that you know you've said this before Jeff and I agree that Having a villain in sports is important, and I think having a villain in a sport like women's basketball is is even more important because you want people to care about the outcome of games, even if it's just to root against the villain, you know? So I, I think UConn being good is good for women's basketball. I think UConn not being quite so dominant is also good for women's basketball. So as I mentioned before, the SEC is pretty interesting this year both for the women and the men on the women's side it's the same you know the 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 familiar teams south carolina who won it all in 2017 texas a&m who won a title 10 years ago tennessee is tennessee obviously that these are the schools that have made names for themselves for the men though there seems to be a changing of the guard a little bit you know kentucky terrible this year (laughs) auburn is down florida is only kind of okay um, and then from out of nowhere is Alabama, which is having its best season ever by a simple rating system. Jeff, is this movement indicative of what we're seeing elsewhere in men's basketball with with Blue Bloods being replaced atop the rankings by teams like Gonzaga and Baylor and Alabama? I think it's more of a blip on the radar. Like, I don't think Kentucky, while they're having a down year this year, I think they will, you know, just looking at like they've got a five-star and two four-stars coming in next year, which is top five in the country, they're going to be fine. With Alabama, you know, this is an interesting team. This is kind of one of these, like, it reminds me a little bit of the Texas Tech team two years ago, but I guess last tournament ago. It's yeah. so confusing <laughs> that that can play at a slow tempo and play really good defense and can kind of frustrate any team. And those kind of teams are pretty good in the tournament. So it'll be interesting. It, to me, I'm just annoyed because like Alabama, please, you have enough. You don't <laughs> need this. Go, go. Be bad at basketball. Yeah, that's not following the long-established rules in college sports. If you're good at, at, ba- at football, you need to be bad at basketball. That's that's just the rules. Sorry. Although Michigan breaks that. Maybe not. Oh, no. No, we don't. Not we, this just year. Switch. we just <laughs> switched. We just swap. We're, yeah. we're just a basketball school now. That's fine. Yeah. Do you guys have a, a kind of a, any dark horse candidates for you know teams that could make a run in the tournament that, that maybe we wouldn't be expecting? 
Uh, well, if if a certain team makes the tournament, which may not happen, uh, they're currently among the last four out, according to ESPN's Bracketology. But my alma mater of Georgia Tech currently uh. ranks in the top 40 of the Ken Palm ratings uh, with the 28th best offense in the league and uh, or in the country. And uh, I think uh, they could do us some damage. They've they've gone cold recently uh and and lost some some acc games uh some by close margins so you know but some by not so close uh but uh, you know this is the best season that our team has had in a long time so it would be great to see them make the tournament and then uh you know once they're top 40 ken palm team maybe make a little noise nice what about you jeff you know i'm i'm sort of the, uh, I was going to say a team and then I'm looking at bracket matrix and there are two seeds. So that I'm like, I can't say that that's pretty boring, but I was going to say, I'm interested in Villanova. I, I, you know, Jay Wright's obviously great coach, proven track record. They have a very dangerous offense. I'm interested in Houston. Also, uh, that's a team that's like very balanced. Good. You know, Ken Palm top 15 offense, top 15 defense. Um, we don't, you know, we saw a little bit of out of conference. They beat Texas Tech. They beat South Carolina. Those are good wins. So they obviously, I think, can hang with the elite conferences. But again, a little bit of an unknown quality. And how about Loyola Chicago making yeah. a uh, back. another potential bid? <laughs> yeah, after uh, that great run of a few years ago, I I think we'd all be excited to see that um, kind of the sequel to that. See if they could do it because this time they're. I don't even know. Well, I don't know. Would they be as much of an underdog? Like, it's kind of bad that, like, looking at Bracket Matrix, they're in line to be an eight seed. They're the 10th best team in the country in Ken Palm. Uh, like, they shouldn't be an eight seed. But, man, if they were, that would be a great, um, you know, Cinderella, uh, mid, mid, mid-seed mid Cinderella, well, not, and not a deep Cinderella. Well, and they'll probably upset a team like... <laughs> Baylor or yeah like Gonzaga. a top seed in the next round if they're right. an eight seed yeah that'll get like screwed by having this team way under which you know always ends up happening but yeah um yeah Loyola could be a fun one um on the women's side I really like Arkansas um they're like a they're Chelsea Dundee is a, an amazing player they beat Baylor, they beat UConn. So they've beaten a couple of these, like, you know, powerhouse teams. They lost by a point to Texas A&M. They lost by two to Georgia. So their their losses have been pretty close. Well, except for they had a huge 20-point loss to South Carolina. You know, that happens. And then they've beaten a couple of these top five teams. So I think they could, they could make a deep run in the tournament, too. All right. Well, let's leave this here for now. We'll take a break and be back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Anil. Yeah, in this week's installment, I wanted to highlight a piece at The Atlantic by Ken Dryden, who is a Hall of Fame goaltender uh, for the Montreal Canadiens turned a really good writer. Um, He wrote uh, the book The Game, which is generally regarded as one of the best sports books ever. But he's written a few things uh, and he wrote a story uh, like an article called Hockey Has a Gigantic Goalie Problem, which I would encourage everybody to read. But I just found it so interesting about he, he talks about the evolution of not just hockey, but of 
other sports too and how you know in basketball the the way it started was as a big man's game which makes sense because height puts you closer to the goal uh it it just is logical and the the three-point line which sort of started out as kind of a gimmick uh nobody really knew where it would go Recently, now, the three-point line radically changed the game and made it much more possible for smaller players to not just do well but dominate the game, uh, and it spread the court in in directions that I think the original creators of the three-point line didn't even anticipate, but it created a very uh, wide variety of different ways you can score, unless you're James Harden, in which you only score by taking threes or getting fouled. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, slight slight drawback. Uh, but for, for many other players, it it has kind of created this interesting way of like, well, what's the problem if you're small and you want to get to the goal or put the bat a ball in the goal and there are bigger people between you and the goal, what do you do? Well, you can shoot over them. But in the comparison of hockey, uh, his argument is that because goalies have gotten so large and their equipment is very large also, but their technique is limits the, the variety of different ways that goals can be scored. There's no three-point line right now. There's no solution for players to kind of take a different strategy to diversify the ways in which scoring happens. And a lot of this is due to the goaltending style, which is has been prevalent for a long time, but the, the butterfly, which is where the goalie kind of drops down onto his knees, realizing that the majority of goals are scored or have always traditionally been scored along ice level. And in the past, because of equipment, because of you know, training and the st- and and just the simple fact that with with poor uh, protective gear, maybe putting your face low at ice level in the way of a puck going at a hundred miles an hour wasn't the best idea. That yeah, who who could have guessed that? But goalies didn't drop down as much in the past, and so it made it a lot easier to score along the ice because they were trying to kind of kick at it and and make saves that way or use their stick, but they didn't drop down and kind of wall off the bottom part of the net. However with improvements in technology and equipment and all of these things and technique in which every goalie is being taught now to go down to their knees. Dryden talks about how almost now when goalies stand up, it's it's sort of to to avoid drawing too much attention to the fact that they could just stay on their knees the whole game. Uh, there really, uh, in some ways, uh, is no reason for them ever to leave their, their knees and get up on their feet because that opens up a small sliver of space in between their legs that they could kind of close off otherwise. And as a result of this, teams have become very homogenous in the ways in which they score. They're not scoring as much off of exciting breaks or, you know, rushes uh, from end to end. They get the puck into the zone and then they park some guys in front of the net to try to screen the goalie because the best strategy now is uh, to create shots that the goalie can't see uh, and therefore can't kind of position himself perfectly in front of. And maybe you could get like a fluky tip in or something like that past uh, the goalie that that's now sort of a viable strategy to scoring or you have to be able to shoot it what they call bar down uh, shoot it toward the v- top crossbar of the net uh, over the shoulder of the goalie that has kind of dipped down onto his knees and that that's the only real space where goals are scored the goals didn't always used to be scored there in fact it was kind of rare to be able to kind of pick out that spot on the net and shoot but now the uh, guys scorers have grown up knowing that's kind of the only place in the net that's undefended and that you have daylight to be able to shoot at. And so I just thought it was very fascinating. His argument is that if you increase the size of the nets, which is a suggestion that 
people have made for a long time that it would take away some of the incentive to to drop down because uh, it, it, you would be covering off yes the bottom part of the net but you'd be leaving even more space toward the top and that uh you could kind of litigate goalies into behaving in a more traditional manner and and uh, a way that makes uh, at least a more diverse way to score now in terms of the actual numbers behind the size of goalies and and kind of looking at it because this is the rabbit hole of uh, our show I took the average height of goalies in the league this year, and I found that they were on average 74.5 inches tall, and also that they weighed an average of 100 and uh, basically 198 pounds on the number. And that number hasn't actually changed that much over the past few years. I found a Wall Street Journal story where they where they looked at those numbers for goalies in uh, the 2016 season, and it was basically the same: 74.5 inches of height, 201 pounds of weight. But they are part of of a trend that certainly has gone up over time. For instance, in 1985, the average goalie was only 70 inches tall and weighed only 176 pounds. So there is definitely a uh, a long-standing upward trend of bigger goalies that can cover up more of the net and really in conjunction with this style of blocking off the bottom part of the net, you, you don't offer that much daylight. Now, you would think, the, the implication of this is that there is less scoring in the league. But in fact, goal scoring has been kind of fine this season. Goalies have their lowest save percentage. That's the share of shots faced that they stopped. Uh, since 2007, they're only stopping 90.7% of shots. That's down from 91.5 as recently as 2016. So in some ways, the scores are getting better at picking out the spots and exploiting the the way that goalies play, but it certainly hasn't changed at like much more than kind of a glacial pace over time. And for a sport that's really obsessed with, you know, keeping scoring up and keeping things exciting and opening things up, uh, we've seen changes to the placement of, you know, lines on the rink to try to create more space. Uh, in the Olympics, they play in a wider rink. Uh, but Dryden makes a great point about that, that if the if the area of incentive is still in front of the net and that that's where the bulk of goals can be scored you could make the rink a mile wide there's no incentive to uh, to have have the defenders kind of come out and and declog that area in front and make the sport more of kind of a rush rushing into end beautiful fast-paced game rather than you know kind of a clog fest in front of the net so his argument is uh is to change the size of the nets and i think it's interesting that hockey for all the changes that they have made they have been very hesitant to make changes to the dimensions of things that are as fundamental as the net and so the, the question for me to put to you guys is, uh, you know, should should hockey change? Should should the nets become wider? Would that create unintended consequences? And what are other uh, examples in sports where you could argue for a change in the dimensions that would kind of improve play? Or is hockey kind of out on an island here where they're the sport that has the biggest, uh, the, the most to gain from, from changing the dimensions of something like the net? I mean, I would say no, but I've never bemoaned hockey for not not having enough scoring. I know that, you know, some people who, you know, often don't like hockey or disparage hockey, they talk about that. But to me, there's a, an exciting amount of scoring. If you're looking at, you know, six, seven goals a game, that's enough. And it makes each goal very meaningful. And it's not like you're getting, you know, just one or two a game like soccer or something like that. So I actually think it has a nice balance. And I, I don't, 
it, to me, it's like uh, fixing something that's not really broken. And I'm just not surprised that goalies are getting bigger. It's it, pretty. And also Dryden was huge. It's interesting. It's coming from him. Wasn't he like. Yeah, he was very be, tall for his era. <laughs> known yeah. to be like the biggest goalie of his time. So it's a little, is he just basically saying I should have stayed on my knees more? <laughs> I think maybe there's part of that for sure. <laughs> what's the what's the um the commercial? I think it's for Geico where they oh, put yeah, a, wall, the, the, a walrus yeah, in the, Exactly. <laughs> that's like the next. It seems <laughs> intuitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, does that mean hockey is like unfixable in that regard? Then, if if it's always going to be a case that putting someone large in front of the net is going to give you an inherent advantage is that just the mechanics of the sport again it, it it doesn't mean it's impossible to score there's still ways to score and it doesn't bother me if you have to score in the top shelf i mean i think those are usually nice looking goals and exciting goals i like i mean obviously i don't have a huge dog in the hockey fight but i do just have a fundamental opposition to leagues tinkering with things which is happens in baseball constantly and it drives me insane because I think that you know this is sort of the classic thing as one area of the game realizes inefficiencies and works to fix those there will be a moment of imbalance before the the opposing side of the game sort of finds its own inefficiencies and works to fix those I mean we see that in, you know, pitchers are getting smarter in baseball and may- maybe they're doing some cheating, too. So there's there's that <laughs> angle. But then the hitters. That's smart, though. You said they're getting cheat. smarter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as long as there's cheating on both sides, I'm fine with it, obviously. But I mean, there's, there's you know, there'll, there'll be you see it in basketball, too. There are more threes. So then defenses take different approaches, either like just give up the three and focus on not giving up anything in the paint or guarding the three differently. I mean, that's how it works. That's how sports evolve. I am fine with that when it happens organically. I don't want leagues to start tinkering because then you take away some of that like kind of natural ebb and flow and the way that players and teams um, think smarter about about different ways to approach the game. Let that happen. Don't start screwing around with stuff. That There are always unintended consequences there. I did endorse the, the college basketball, men's college basketball, moving the three-point line back to be more would, in line with... I would like them to just leave it alone, though, now. Like, now you know, it's kind fine, of but I was fine well, with that because you know, it's better for them to be uniform, I always thought. The incremental step in, what, tw- 2008 was annoying. Like either move it all the way back to the NBA line right. or or leave it where it was. That like in between thing was just dumb. All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.